Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen. And today we're talking to Dr. Anna Lemke. She's the author of Dopamine Nation and we're going to be talking to her about addiction, how our brains work and how to deal with an age of overconsumption. Well, my name is Anna Lemke. I'm a psychiatrist and I am on the faculty here at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, I see patients, I teach and I do research. You've got a new book out called Dopamine Nation. For the non-experts among us, what exactly is dopamine and what does it do? What's the kind of like beginner's guide to dopamine? Dopamine is a chemical in the brain that's in very important to the experience of reward, motivation, and pleasure. Um, We all secrete a tonic level of dopamine. And when we do something that's rewarding or reinforcing, um, we release more dopamine. So it goes above um, tonic baseline levels. Um, But one of the key aspects um, of our brains is that um, it wants to always restore homeostasis or a level balance. So as soon as we have an increase in dopamine, our brains will actually downregulate our own dopamine production and dopamine transmission, not just back to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels and put us in a dopamine deficit state. And this is essentially how our brain uses dopamine to regulate um, the reward experience. And it's also the same part of the brain that is um, involved in the disease of addiction. So how can this play into um, long-term mental health issues like depression um, and also um, struggles like addiction? 
Well, the fundamental difference between things that are addictive and those that aren't is that things that are addictive release a whole lot of dopamine all at once in the brain's reward pathway. Um, and it's essentially, you know, more than our primitive brains were evolved to, to deal with. So that in response, again, what our brains will do is immediately downregulate our dopamine and dopamine receptors, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline will be put into a into a, a dopamine deficit state and will remain there for a while until our brains are able to kind of recover, recover essentially from the insults of so much dopamine and restore normal baseline levels or what, what scientists call homeostasis. And that dopamine deficit state is um, akin to depression. Um, people feel anxious, irritable, depressed, they can't sleep. They have intrusive thoughts of wanting to use their drug. And for people who engage in heavy drug use for long periods of time, um, that dopamine deficit state can endure and essentially become the new normal such that um, people need to continue to use their drug of choice, not to feel high anymore, but just to feel normal and restore baseline levels. And when they're not using, they feel the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are, again, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, and dysphoria. So the bottom line is that using addictive substances and behaviors actually drives uh, initial dopamine elevation, but then a plummeting dopamine deficit state. And that state can look like a psychiatric disorder. I have many patients who come in and believe that there's, you know, that their primary problem is depression or anxiety or what have you. Um, but really their primary problem is uh, consuming too much of a highly reinforcing drug or behavior that is essentially driving or creating the depressive state. You talked in there about um, a drug of choice, but we're not just talking about sort of the obvious addictive substances, are we, like cocaine, for example? That's right. And one of the central points of my book is that everything today has become drugified, shopping, um, reading, uh, you know, social media, texting, gaming, gambling, uh, you name it, wherever you turn, uh, there is a highly reinforcing drug or behavior at your disposal. The smartphone has essentially become the equivalent of the hypodermic syringe delivering digital dopamine 24-7. And the result is that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction. When does it become, because I think they're I think we imagine at least like, okay, there's healthy pursuit of pleasure of dopamine and then there's addiction. Where's the line? When does it become kind of normal, healthy, okay pursuit of pleasure and addiction? Yeah, I think, you know, it's going to be different for every person. And when we slip into addiction, first of all, addiction is a spectrum disorder, mild, moderate, and severe um, rates of addiction are going up all over the world, especially in rich nations. Um, there's also a growing cohort, cohort of people with minor addictions that might not meet, you know, a fifth official pathological criteria, but that are heading that way. I think almost all of us can relate to a minor addiction of, of one form or another. And the things, um, you know, to really look for or be mindful about uh, when, when we're considering whether or not we're creeping over to the side of addiction is really to think about um, you know, the pleasure pain, what, I, what I've called the pleasure pain balance or these dopamine levels, and to really be, be aware of when, for example, we develop tolerance. Now, tolerance is 
needing more and more of the drug to get the same effect or needing more potent versions of the drug uh, to get the same effect. And what that tells us is that we've essentially driven our dopamine levels so far below baseline tonic levels that we've developed tolerance to the drug. We need even more of that drug. We, we essentially have become relatively insensitive to pleasure and more vulnerable to pain. The other thing to watch for is um, how we feel right after we do our drug. If we notice that we're more irritable, depressed, anxious, ruminative, um, that tells us that we probably engaged in uh, something that caused a surge of dopamine that is now driving um, a, a dopamine deficit state. And if we do that too much, again, we can drive our brain into this kind of um, chronic dopamine deficit state. The other thing to look for um, that we might be heading into a chronic dopamine deficit state, which is really the hallmark of addiction, is that nothing else is interesting anymore. So once we've entered that place, we're very focused on our drug. It's the only thing that gives us pleasure. And other things that we used to enjoy are no longer pleasurable. They seem less salient to us, less interesting. Um, and I can use my own experience as an example. I'm somebody who thought I was relatively impervious to the problem of addiction. Caffeine doesn't really wake me up. Alcohol doesn't really um, make me feel good. It just gives me a headache and puts me to sleep. But along about middle age, I discovered uh, the my drug, and that was romance novels. And I started out with the Twilight Saga, and I didn't think anything of it. It seemed like an innocent pleasure. But um, I essentially became obsessed with, with reading romance. I read everything I could find. Um, over time, I needed more and more graphic and um, you know, graphic sex scenes to, to get any pleasure from it. And eventually, you know, a year and a half later, I was, you know, staying up all night reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a minor example. You know, it didn't lead to the kind of devastating consequences that people with severe addictions experience. But it was nonetheless, um, in retrospect, quite an eye-opening experience for me because I didn't see it when it was happening. Um, I did get to a point where nothing was else was interesting, not my husband, not my children, not my work. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 this, this experience of tolerance was really fascinating where um, I just needed more and more potent forms over time. And, you know, in retrospect, I could see that I really, I had entered a dopamine deficit state and that was, that was driving uh, much of my behavior. I'm glad you bring up that example, because I think a lot of people associate kind of tolerance and that deficit with, you know, come downs and using hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. And they wouldn't associate that with something like romance novels or the internet. So is it the same as basically anything can cause that effect because it is just anything that's pleasurable if you're kind of pushing it. I like the seesaw kind of illustrations that you use in your book, which I think are really handy, but difficult to explain over audio, obviously. Um, I really like that kind of example of if you're putting too much on the dopamine side, it's going to swing the other way. So do you think it is a case that that can apply to literally anything that's pleasurable? Absolutely. I think that what goes up must come down and there's a cost for every pleasure, no matter how, how subtle it might be. And as we press too hard on the pain, uh, the pleasure side of that balance, 
we essentially end up um, weighted to the to the pain side of the balance. You know, a simple example is just with quarantine and binge watching shows. You know, we were all spending a lot more time indoors on our screens. And I think, you know, by the time we were 12 months into quarantine, people were describing that they couldn't find anything that they wanted to watch anymore. Well, it wasn't for lack of shows or even good shows. It was just that we had watched so many shows. And by the time you've watched so many shows, you know, just the shows that used to be interesting or fun kind of get boring. And so we need more and more graphic scenes or we need more shows. Um, so all these things I think are, are good examples that the average person might be able to relate to in terms of, you know, how just basically inundating our brain's reward pathway with these um, pleasurable experiences ultimately leads to them being less pleasurable and, and leads to us sort of, again, um, being in this dopamine deficit state where we're not really enjoying anything. So when I'm listening to that, one thing that I'm thinking is, okay, if that thing doesn't work anymore, could I just swap to a different drug of choice and just keep, you know, putting on the dopamine and getting rid of the inevitable come down. Can you explain why that um, would not work and is probably not a good idea? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and that's been sort of the recent common advice. It's like, oh, if you want to give up, you know, this uh, consumptive behavior, replace it with something else um, and, and you're going to reward yourself with something else or some other, you know, um, high reward uh, substance or behavior. And the reason that doesn't really work in the long term is because of a phenomenon called cross addiction. Essentially, all addictive substances and behaviors work on the same common reward pathway. Uh, the same final molecule is dopamine for any reinforcing drug or behavior. So that ultimately, um, you know, if you replace one rewarding behavior with another, you will eventually probably get addicted to that behavior or, or it simply won't work. So again, if you, so I think maybe I'll try to describe the pleasure pain balance, but, you know, um, pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain, meaning that, that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of the balance. So when we do something rewarding or pleasurable, it tips our balance to the side of pleasure. Dopamine is released in the reward pathway. But no sooner has that happened that our brain will compensate by tipping the balance in equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And I imagine that as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance. Uh, but the gremlins like it there. So with, uh, you know, with repeated exposure, they're going to eventually end up camped out there. That's the dopamine deficit state. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis or a level balance is restored. But if we continue to ingest highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors, including other drugs that are not our drug of choice, we essentially just cause more gremlins to hop on the pain side of the balance. Um, or, you know, if we try to use a less potent form of another reward, it doesn't work because now we've got so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that we need a great big sledgehammer of a reward to bring our balance level again. So that's, that's essentially the problem. And this has been shown also in animal studies. If you get a rat addicted to cannabis and then you take that cannabis away um, for a year, which is about a rat lifetime, and then you expose that rat to another drug like cocaine, that, that rat will get addicted to cocaine much faster than a, than a rat that had never been exposed to cannabis. 
So in other words, once we become addicted to something, it leaves a kind of latent echo um, in our brain such that we're more likely to get addicted to another substance. So the big question is, what can we do about it? How can we prevent all of this from happening and kind of escape that compulsive overconsumption? Yeah, so, um, you know, that that's essentially why I wrote Dopamine Nation to suggest that people in recovery from addiction are modern day prophets for the rest of us living in a dopamine overloaded world. And that what we can do is, first of all, recognize the ways in which we have all developed minor and or major addictions, that even the smartphone itself uh, is addictive, and that it's not just that our consumption is destroying our planet. It's also that it's making us very unhappy in insidious ways that we don't recognize. But if we abstain from our drug of choice for a period of time um, and tolerate the discomfort of the withdrawal that happens when our pleasure pain balance tips to the side of pain, which it will do until the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored. But if we can just sit and tolerate those withdrawal symptoms until we restore homeostasis, what we will discover is that we're much better off and much happier when we're not constantly titillating our reward pathways. And then I think we need to engage um, in an active individual and collective discussion about how to moderate our consumption, because it's clear we're not putting the genie back in the bottle. We're not getting rid of social media. Even if Facebook goes away tomorrow, social media will not. So we really have to ask ourselves, how, are, how can we moderate our consumption? How can we, how can we integrate this technology in our, in our lives in healthy and adaptive ways? And I think that will require restraint, a new kind of asceticism, moderation, limits on our use, I talk about self-binding strategies and both in terms of space, time, and categories. You know, what are the things online that I personally cannot do? I cannot watch YouTube videos of Dr. Pimple Popper. Once I start watching YouTube videos of Dr. Pimple Popper, I find myself three hours later still watching YouTube videos of Dr. Pimple Popper. I cannot tell you why, but for whatever reason, um, you know, that, that, that doesn't work for me. I'm also actually somebody who probably can't have a smartphone that's on 24 seven because I just become compulsively obsessed with not so much reaching out to other people, but once I've reached out to other people, why isn't that, they, why isn't it that they haven't responded yet? And then I become fixated on that response. It's, it's, I, I, I don't want to live like that. So instead um, I turn off my phone. I have it, you know, I use it when I need it, but for the most part, it's off when it's in my bag. And it's amazing what that does. It's kind of like when I give uh, people with opioid addiction now Trexone, which is an opioid receptor blocker. But when I turn off my phone, it's like I've taken a, a, a technological version of now Trexone. I just don't think about my phone at all because it's off. Um, I, I don't, I'm not on social media. I can't do social media for, for all the reasons that we're talking about. So I think each of us, you know, individually and collectively is going to have to figure out what do, what do I have to do so that I can use the technology and reap the wonderful things that come with this technology, um, but also, you know, spare myself the things that are making me miserable. I feel like that requires a lot of kind of self-awareness and strength as well, because I think what you're saying in some way is it might feel a bit shit for a while and then afterwards it will be better. How do we convince other people and ourselves, to be honest, I'm asking for myself as well, to recognize that and actually think like it's worth it. It's worth going through 
this really rubbish part for a longer term, better feeling. Well, hopefully your podcast will do that. Um, (laughs) You know, I do feel that when people understand the neuroscience and the potential price that they're paying on a neurobiological level, um, that, that it makes sense to people. And then I just really suggest it as an experiment. I say, hey, you know, in the grand scheme of your life, would it be that big a deal to give up your drug of choice for a month? And, and frankly, a month is about the minimum amount of time that it takes for homeostasis to be restored, for dopamine levels to reset themselves. Um, and when people are willing to engage in this experiment, and you know, there maybe you need to take a, you know, some time off of work, or maybe you need to do it with a friend, or maybe you can't do four weeks, but you could do two weeks. Um, what, what people report once they do the experiment is that they feel so much better that then that becomes motivation in itself. So the initial experiment is a hard sell for sure, but people are, I think a lot of people are unhappy and anxious and they don't really know why and they keep trying to solve that problem. So this is an experiment they can try to see if maybe they're getting you know too much dopamine and that by simply abstaining, they might find they feel better enough. And then that becomes motivation in and of itself to either maintain those gains or to, you know, search for new ones. I don't know if you ever seen, there's this thing that um, some like tech guy, Silicon Valley people do, where they'll do a dopamine fast and they'll say, you know, for a weekend, I'm having no external stimuli, like nothing that would trigger any kind of excitement or pleasure. Is that a good pursuit or is that also maybe not the best approach? Yeah. So that's essentially what I've been recommending, you know, Mm. in my clinical practice for a couple decades now. So it was interesting to see it come out, um, sort of, you know, in, in social media. And I have a chapter in my book called dopamine fasting. So I do use that terminology too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that is necessary. I think we're living in this overstimulated, you know, dopamine overloaded world and that we do need to take these periods of abstinence in order to stop bombarding our reward pathway and to restore baseline levels uh, of dopamine. Um, you know, a weekend is great. I really think that um, people need to take longer than that in order to really get back to healthy levels. But then after they've done a longer you know, dopamine fast, um, I do think that regular dopamine fasting at regular intervals um, is a good way to maintain homeostasis and keep dopamine in check. Um, a lot of people are doing this also, you know, um, for example, I have friends in the Jewish community who are using uh, the Saturday Sabbath as an opportunity to do that, to disconnect from technology and kind of use that 24-hour period um, as a sort of regular pulse to um, keep healthier levels uh, of dopamine. So yes, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And I think it's not going to be one size fits all. You know, a lot of people need to um, stay connected digitally for their work, although I think that can also get to be an excuse. Um, but even if you can't turn off your screens altogether for an extended period of time, um, there you can you can still you can still sort of um, consolidate the way that you use it, the times that you use it. You can still 
um, get rid of the pernicious apps that that are not needed um, for certain aspects that are mandatory in your life. So yeah, I think you know people we we all need to start having these conversations with ourselves, with each other, and just try experimenting and seeing um, what it does for you. It's interesting that you recommend um, a month. That's right, isn't it? Um, generally. Yeah, I do. And I, I base that on my patients, um, you know, in my clinical practice. Now, of course, in my clinical practice, I'm seeing people who mostly have developed um, a bona fide addiction. Um, so, you know, you, you could make the argument that for less severe cases, maybe a month isn't quite necessary. But in my, my own case, in the book, I talk about how I got addicted to romance novels. And in my own case, I found that it really took a month of abstinence from reading romance and really reading any nighttime novels for me to feel like I got out of that compulsive loop. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty minor addiction by, by most standards. Um, and yet I felt like it took me a full month to kind of get, you know, restore homeostasis. Once I was there, I decided I would try reading again. And I, I actually binged and had this kind of horrific um, abstinence violation effect, which is a known phenomenon. Sometimes after people abstain and then they go back to trying to use in moderation and then they, they use worse than they ever did before. And it was that, that, that binge abstinence violation after a month of abstinence that led me to believe that I actually had to abstain for a whole year, which then I did, did do. Um, and that year is really what kind of, I think, got me out of that, that loop. Although I still have, you know, euphoric recall, which is also a classic addiction phenomenon where I will occasionally, especially if I'm feeling anxious or low or want an escape, I'll remember how good it could feel to read romance and I'll want to go back and get another book. And then sometimes when I've tried, here's the other thing about, you know, addictive drugs and behaviors, they stop working. (laughs) So essentially, you know, there's almost no romance that I could read now that does the trick anymore. It's like I've burned out those neurons. Um, And again, it's the pleasure pain balance. I've got some gremlins that are on the pain side when it comes to those novels that are just never going away. And I hear that often from my patients, people, for example, who used cannabis for a long period of time, decades in some case to help them go to sleep at night. And then it just stops working. It doesn't matter how potent it is or how much they use. In fact, it gets the opposite effect. They get paranoid, restless, anxious. It doesn't put them to sleep anymore. So better to look at your addictions early and manage them early and not wait until you've uh, you know, kind of permanently changed your neurobiology. What do you think yours would be, Ellen, if you're putting something down? Or do you not, not want to go into that? Oh. <laughs> I, won't, I won't go into that, to be honest. <laughs> I've definitely had, like, I would say, addiction issues in the past and I didn't recognize it as oh that is like addiction because I think people have such a picture of what addiction looks like Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to talk about these other kind of forms of it well that's what I was thinking I think it's really interesting that we are talking about it and these different things that people can become addicted to and I love the romance novel example because I do think still when we hear the word addiction people's minds do immediately go to drugs and they also immediately kind of seem to section people off for some reason if you know if they're maybe if they are sort of using alcohol or using drugs and and maybe not relating to them so it's so interesting to hear that it's this spectrum um and that it it sort of sounds like everybody's prone to it is is that true that everybody is kind of prone to it do you think 
Yeah, I mean, I think you said it beautifully. And, you know, thank you for saying that. That's really one of the major messages I'm trying to get out, that this is a spectrum disorder, um, that, you know, we all share the same innate um, biology that has evolved over millions of years of evolution to have us approach pleasure and avoid pain. Again, it's what's kept us alive through these many millions of years, but we're just now living in a time where our primitive biology is no longer adaptive to our modern ecosystem. Um, and so we've all become vulnerable to this problem and we all need to figure out, um, you know, how to, how to adapt to, to this brave new world. But with um, people who have existing chronic mental illness, say depression, OCD, we know that they are more likely to become addicted. Why is that? Is that some kind of like inherent neurobiological difference or is it just an environmental risk factor? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question. And it it is true that people with um, mental illness are more likely to become addicted than people without mental illness. I think one way to think about that is, you know, when we talk about the pleasure pain balance, um, you know, I, when I originally described it, the assumption is that we start, we start out all of us with a pleasure pain balance that is level with the ground, um, that homeostasis is a level balance, but, um, you know, not everybody probably starts out with a level balance. Some people probably start start out with a balance slightly tipped to the side of pain, which can manifest in a lot of different ways, um, physical pain, you know, mental and psychological pain. And so um, those people would naturally be more inclined to try to find a solution to that pain problem and might discover um, addictive drugs and behaviors as a way to get out of pain. The problem is that no matter where your balance starts out, uh, the overriding physiology of wanting to restore the balance to whatever baseline homeostasis um, we started out with is still there. So that um, using these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors to try to get out of pain just simply doesn't work. Um, and you know the self-medication hypothesis for addiction is a hypothesis that's been around for about 100 years that says that, oh, the reason people get addicted is because they're trying to treat an underlying psychological condition. And although there's some truth to that, what's not true about the self-medication hypothesis is that it's actually medicinal, um, you know, that it actually works because um, it's it's the opposite. It can make psychiatric and psychological symptoms much worse. And part of why it does that is because Again, it drives this dopamine deficit state where we end up with a pleasure pain balance tipped further to the side of pain than wherever we started. And the data are very clear that people with mental illness who use um, addictive substances end up with more hospitalizations, a worse prognosis, a worse course. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not medicinal, even though subjectively in the moment it may feel <clears throat> like it's alleviating uh, those psychological symptoms over time, what's happening is that it's just essentially alleviating withdrawal from the last dose. It's just trying to restore the balance. What about kind of prescribed medication like antidepressants or kind of ADHD medication? Because I know in your book, you actually explain a bit that there are studies that show that they might make issues worse over time. But when you are in that balance of being tipped towards pain, you want anything to fix it. Um, so I guess my question is, 
what what do you think about that? Is it the case that these medications should only be short term? Are they a long term sustainable solution? Are you against them? So I'm not against medication. I'm a psychiatrist and I prescribe medications every clinic day and, um, and they're life-saving tools, um, you know, in some instances, but they are definitely over-prescribed. And particularly when we're talking about um, medications that doctors prescribe that we know are addictive, things like opioids, things like benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin. Um, these are medications that we definitely should only use short term because um, what we're finding is, again, with daily use over months to years, they stop working. People need more and more to get the same effect. And then they can even cause the problem that they originally set out to solve. So, for example, people with chronic pain who take opioids daily for a long period of time can develop something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia means um, hyper pain. It means um, that these people actually can develop um, pain in parts of their body that they never had pain in in the first place. And we believe that that's a result of taking the opioids, which essentially lowers their pain threshold, decreases their own endogenous production of endorphins and other naturally occurring opioids, um, and ends up making them feel more pain. And it was one of the you know, learning of this was really a, a revelation for me. And um, when you expand that idea out to other types of rewards, whether it's, you know, pornography or shopping, uh, you can see how the same things would occur. Likewise with benzodiazepines, they're great short term, uh, but when used repeatedly over days to weeks to months to years, they can actually make anxiety worse. They can make insomnia worse. So these are medications that um, again, they're great tools when used properly, um, but especially if they have a known addictive potential, um, we don't want to use them long term. I feel like I'm asking you like the big, big questions that maybe don't have an answer. But if the answer isn't, <laughs> if the answer isn't necessarily those kind of medications or those, you know, drugs of choice. What is the answer for someone who's listening, who's in pain, whether that's mental or physical? What can they do? Well, I mean, I want to emphasize that, um, you know, I'm not giving medical advice per se, um, but if you just think about the neuroscience, if you have a chronic painful or chronic, uh, physically painful or chronic, a psychologically painful condition, um, one of the things that paradoxically may help is to engage in mild to moderate uh, forms of pain as a way to set in motion your own body's healing mechanisms. And there's, there's science behind this. So again, if, if you think of the pleasure-pain balance, we know that when we press too hard on the pleasure side, we end up with the balance weighted to the side of pain. Well, if we press in mild to moderate degrees on the pain side, we actually get our brains to adapt and tip our, our balance to the side of, of pleasure. What that means is that we start to upregulate up production of our own endogenous dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, um, endogenous opioids, endocannabinoids, um, all those feel-good chemicals, um, you know, that that give us that sense of, of well-being and also um our analgesic alleviate pain. 
And examples um, include things like engaging in mild to moderate exercise at tolerated doses. Exercise is immediately toxic to cells, but uh, the after effects are a potent upregulation of, again, all of those good feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, Things like ice-cold water baths are now being explored as a way to manage um, both chronic physical pain and chronic psychological pain. Um, Interestingly, there's a medication called naltrexone, which blocks the opioid receptor, which is being used in small doses to treat people with chronic pain. It seems completely counterintuitive that you would block the opioid receptor to help people with with pain since opioids are the things that relieve pain, but our body makes its own opioids. And when we block the opioid receptor, what's very likely happening is that we're sending the signal to our body that we need more opioids because our body isn't seeing any of those opioids because of the blocked receptor. So then our body starts making more of its own endogenous endorphins and other opioids. It upregulates opioids. Um, Also in terms of, you know, psychological painful things we can do, just getting ourselves to do things that are kind of inconvenient, you know, walking instead of driving or things that bring us anxiety. We have so many people now who have social phobia. So forcing ourselves to go out and interact with real people in real life, even though it's unpleasant. These are all ways to, again, sort of um, build up the mental calluses and upregulate our own healing systems so that we can reset homeostasis to a level um, where we're feeling better. All sounds much less fun than watching Netflix and doing all the good stuff, but <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It, I, I think we'll, we'll convince people that it's worth trying. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very counterintuitive. If you're feeling low and you're feeling like, Oh gee, what can I do to make myself feel better? Your instinct might be, well, maybe I'll binge watch a show instead, maybe go out for a walk. Yeah. That is good. And also it echoes so much of what we've been hearing over the past year. We've had so many people recommending cold water showers and cold water baths and also going for walks and doing things that don't necessarily sound appealing. But when you do them, they do actually make you feel a lot better. Yeah, that's right. And if you just think about it in terms of, you know, dopamine and the pleasure pain balance, it will actually also make sense. And it's good to understand, you know, why we do what we do. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, you can give the Samaritans and Ring on 116123. If you like Mentally Yours, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at MentallyYRS. We also have a lovely Facebook group, which is just called Mentally Yours. And if you really liked us, you could do us a massive favour and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated. Uh, Helps us, you know, continue doing what we're doing. So please do rate and review and check back in next week for more Mentally Yours. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.